Welcome. My name is Dan Hughes. I'm Client Portfolio Manager here at the firm. With me today is Chris Wallace, Senior Portfolio Manager, CEO and CIO at Vaughn Nelson. All right, so shifting gears a little bit, let's, let's do a bit of a speed round here. Uh, we're going to throw some macro topics at you uh, real quick. Tell me your likelihood, your thoughts of them occurring, and uh, you know maybe a couple of lines on, on uh, where your head's at. Uh, the repatriation of assets coming back to the U.S. I think it has as good a shot as uh, anything. Uh, do I think it matters? Not really. Infrastructure spend? Um, I think we'll do it. And again, does it matter? Not really. And the reason I say that is I think the biggest challenge this administration is going to have, and this is what I think the market's not focused on, uh, we've really struggled to fund our deficits in the last 12 months. And if you look at what the country has been very good at exporting since the kind of the, the late 90s, since the peak in 99 and 2000, uh, we don't export goods. We export U.S. Treasuries. Uh, and we export them at a tremendous rate. Uh, and unfortunately, there's been a shift in how we kind of trade global goods, starting with oil, but it's, it's moving more to just general trade. And the rest of the world has less of a need for our U.S. treasuries. So unless, you know, Japan or someone else is going to do us a favor, um, we're either going to have to go back to utilizing QE to fund these deficits, which I don't know if this administration is ready to do, or... Uh, the level of infrastructure spend or the reliance on the private-public uh, partnerships are going to be much greater. And so I think that just complicates things. I think it, ex- it either reduces how much we can spend or it dramatically extends into the future uh, when that stimulus will start. Um, so instead of it being kind of a early 2018, maybe it's a late 2018, early 2019 event, more importantly, as an investor, if you own any of these securities because of some potential infrastructure spend, you're foolish. Uh, it's really difficult for that to be a needle mover for more than a handful of companies. And it's so far out in the future that it's unlikely to take place yeah. uh, or be impactful for a portfolio or an investment yeah. in the short term. Uh, we may re- repeal it in name only. It was completely unsustainable as it stands. We all knew it when it was written. That's why they kept delaying implementation till past, after the midterm elections um, in the last cycle. Uh, so it was going to get redone. It was going to be adjusted. I think we're going to uh, do that. I, I do think it's important that uh, we keep certain elements on it, uh, be it, you know, the adult children can stay on their parents' insurance till they're 26, great. Um, that's not as big a deal to me as we need to uh, allow people with pre-existing conditions uh, to maintain their insurance. Uh, so I think for the most part, it's going to remain intact. Um, I think the way it's constructed, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, so when you look at the fall in consumer spending in the last kind of 12 to 18 months, it's all been because of rising costs of home ownership, rising cost of, quote, kind of utilities, education, and health care. And so what we've done is take a pie that wasn't growing and just cut a slice off consumption and move it to more mandatory spending. And that's effectively what the Affordable Care Act has done. Hopefully we'll start expanding the pie again. And if we don't, uh, we got bigger issues. Touched on tax reform. Could I ask you, where do you see it going? How the likelihood of that occurring, uh, both in corporate and do you think there'll be uh, retail tax reform as well? I certainly hope so. And, and most importantly, I hope we get real corporate tax reform because we've already priced it in. And if we don't get it, we're going to be in a world of hurt uh, from uh, uh, 
a stock market standpoint. So I, I do think we get it. Uh, do we get kind of uh, corporate tax reform for individuals? Uh, we will on the margin. Uh, to what extent? I don't know. I, I'm really going to be looking for kind of in the first 30 to 60 days is indications as to whether uh, Congress understands that they are having difficulty funding deficits and whether they try to do this in a revenue neutral method. Um, and if so, they better use dynamic scoring. Otherwise, you know, you can, you can forget about any kind of real stimulus. No, that's great. And let's, let's do another big topic here. Let's talk about the shift to active, uh, from the shift from <laughs> active to passive, uh, why it's happened, I know you've got an interesting take uh, about the um, inability for active managers to separate themselves from passive investing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about why that's happened, how big of a deal it is, and where do you see that trend going? Sure. Uh, first, let me say, I, I think it makes perfect sense that really from the late 90s to today, we've seen a shift from active to passive. Uh, number one, uh, the idea, it, it shouldn't be a binary world. Uh, you know, a passive strategy belongs in every portfolio. It, a cheap way to gain access to the market is important. I think what is equally as important is to understand um, kind of the evolution of passive versus active. And I think it's only been in the last few years that we've even been able to define what active is. Um, active is not... Uh, uh, just not being an index. If you don't look at least 85 to 90% different than the index, be it holdings or weights or a combination of the two, then you don't have sufficient active share to outperform. So if you're a closet indexer, meaning the strategy, you know, owns a little bit of everything in every sector, owns Exxon because I'll make up a number, it's 4% of the index, and they're just choosing whether they want to be 3 or 5%. You're not an active manager. You're babysitting money. You're a mean reverting strategy at best. Um, but I think what's important to understand is the interrelationship between active and passive and why then I think a lot of active managers have struggled in the last few years. What it takes for a passive strategy to be successful is you need sustainable productivity growth, uh, you need property rights, and you need a market that doesn't award the misallocation of capital. Uh, and for the most part, the only one of those conditions that has existed for the last five or six years has been property rights. Um, but for the most part, with quantitative is easing and the fact that that money went into risk assets instead of into the general economy, it meant that we really haven't had sustainable productivity growth. We've underinvested on CapEx. We haven't had enough value creation. And so the pie hasn't expanded. And with that, we've rewarded the misallocation of capital. Yeah, we're just going to look out at some topics that are perhaps a little esoteric, perhaps less household in nature. One of the things that we've been discussing here in-house is the move from oil being traded in USD and the movement to the euro dollar. Chris, could you explain a little bit about what the euro dollar actually is? Yeah. Why we are moving away from that on a global basis, uh, what the new currency and uh, new uh, countries are that are, are, are producing this, sure. um, and the impact to U.S. Yeah. investing. Yeah, so I, I think this is the most important uh, thing that's occurring in, in markets in general. Um, and it kind of ties back into not only the policies at work as well, but ultimately the funding issues we have. Uh, and the rest of the world has been moving away from the U.S. dollar and global trade. 
Uh, and from really the mid-1800s until uh, the early 1970s, the rest of the world traded commodities and global trade in their own respective currencies, whatever that was, or whatever form a currency took, whether it was gold-backed or fiat. Um, then in the early 1970s, we made a deal with Saudi Arabia that said we'd kind of, we'll build up the Navy, we'll guarantee global peace and trade routes, and you trade every a barrel of oil in U.S. dollars, and that really began the proliferation of dollars in earnest around the world, and the dollar became the de facto currency around the world. And, and we've been very careful to defend that and to defend that with the use of our military over time. Um, all that really began changing, uh, and it began changing as the current system, as it's structured, just kind of outlived it, its uh, relative usefulness, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, China's a big enough importer, and when the world uses U.S. dollars, they're kind of subject to U.S. dollar policy, and when we were the primary importer, that was fine. Now we're at the point where we're not the only importer of goods and services or even the marginal importer of, of goods, and so with that, you know, that our dollar policy doesn't necessarily uh, need to be the predominant currency in global trade. Um, our Treasury secretaries admitted to this. Uh, we've already seen Russia and China trading oil in their own respective currencies. Uh, what's more importantly is China and Russia have linked their currencies to the physical gold market. So if you want to uh, take your Chinese currency out of the country, they've been happy to let you do it if you do it in the form of gold. And so what that means is uh, uh, with as other countries adopt this same currency regime, which we're seeing with Kazakhstan, Algeria, and others, we're going to go back to a global trading environment that's net settled in a currency that's neutrally referenced to gold. So we're going to go back to a world where <clears throat> global goods are traded in their own respective currencies. And with that, the neutral reference point will be gold instead of the dollar, which means there's going <clears> to <throat> be less demand for dollars. Uh, more demand for other currencies, and you can already see this. So while the Chinese currency has been going down relative to the dollar, it's actually been going up relative to the other currencies in its basket. Uh, so it's more of a sign of a shift in the way the dollar's <clears throat> being traded relative to, to, to the rest of the world rather than any shift underlying in the Chinese currency. Um, and I think this is going to continue, and it's going to continue in earnest. And unfortunately, it's happening at a time when our deficits are blowing out. And really, the only thing we're using our deficits for is, hasn't been really for productive purposes. It's just to pay uh, uh, Medicare, uh, Social Security, and our defense budget, and our interest. Um, and so I'm not sure the rest of the world's going to be willing to finance these entitlements. However, if we choose different policies that are more pro-growth, that may bring different buyers back. And we have the added benefit of, I, th I think Europe's really going to struggle uh, for the next several years. Uh, <clears throat> and I do think the emerging world's going to be forced to pay down a lot of their U.S. dollar-denominated debt. And that's really what's driving the strength in the dollar more so than, it, than, than anything else. So expect a lot more dollar volatility. Expect the role of the dollar to change. More importantly, if you're an investor in commodities, it's going to go from one-dimensional being just supply and demand to at least two- or three-dimensional to be not only supply and demand, but what's also going on in the currency regime. Uh, so it's going to be a very different world for certain sectors, and, and I don't think many investors are going to be prepared for it. Thank you, Chris. We certainly appreciate your time today. 
Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Chris Wallace as of January 18, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Provided by NGAM Distribution LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. Compliance Code 1715137111, Job Pod 78C, 0217, expires 831.17.